0: Hello, my name is Ben Kitchings, and you're listening to the History Voyager, a podcast about history. As always, thank you for listening to the History Voyager. There's a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you for listening to mine. If the Serbia situation that I've talked about over the last two episodes seems complicated, it's because it is. It was very complicated, very, very fluid. And as an outsider looking in, and again, I have absolutely no dog in this fight at all. I'm not Serbian ethnically. I'm, you know, English and Irish mostly with a little bit of French Protestant thrown in there. But from an outsider looking in, you know, a hundred something years in the future from their perspective, The thing that I keep seeing over and over again is a fluid, very complex situation which, of course, was going to collapse. The reason I say, of course, it was going to collapse was possibly a bit of hindsight. But also, we need to understand that there was a Slavic cohort. I don't even know if you'd call it a minority or a majority or whatever but there was certainly a cohort of Slavs who had no desire at all to be governed by the Ottomans or by the Austro-Hungarians or just really anybody but themselves and there's a lot to be said to that and there's a lot that goes into that and I've certainly talked a lot about that in the last two episodes The thing you need to understand as we talk about Gavrilo Princip is he's always referred to these days as either a terrorist or a freedom fighter on one side or the other. And again, a lot of this is, and I hate relativism. I absolutely do. I'm not somebody that thinks relativism is great and wonderful and amazing I actually hate it I hate it a lot and the reason I hate it a lot is there are objective realities there are simply are objective facts and relativism gets in the way of that but it is actually true in this case that there are people that think of Gabriela Principe as a freedom fighter and there are people that think of Gabriela Principe as a terrorist And on that score, I'm really not going to judge him because believe it or not, for all this talk about Serbia, we're really not going to be spending a long time on Serbia relative to the other stuff. Because the only thing that Serbia has that's relevant to this story really is the mindset of the powers that be. And also the mindset of a lot of the people on the eve of World War I and actually in World War I. A lot of these people, and I mean a whole lot of them, actually, honest to God, they saw this war as something romantic. Now, I'm sure some of you are younger than others of you out there in this listening audience. Which, by the way, the listening audience is growing leaps and bounds, and I'm just amazed, and I'm honestly humbled. But, now, what do I mean by romantic? I mean the powers that be had a... call it a very rosy-eyed, if you will, uh, view of what war was. There was actually a British uh, muckety-muck in the British military on the eve of world war one who said that he couldn't wait to get into the war because he felt that the men in his country the young men in his country were soft and not at all capable of being you know in this race that he thought was the race at the top of the world now we need to understand from that that he was talking about the british race and not the human race or the white race but the race of British people. And I think that's super important to talk about. Let me just bring this mic a little closer. I think that's super important to talk about in a podcast about history. About the history of the Spanish flu. That on the eve of World War One, it was still a widely held belief by a whole lot of people. That the British were a separate race of human from, say, the Spanish, or the Blacks, or, well, not Blacks, Africans, or, you know, the Poles, or the Germans, or the Russians, every you know, not everybody, not a lot of the scientists, maybe not even some of the medical people, but a lot of the leaders who, remember, weren't really educated in medicine or science. They were educated, if they were educated at all, because, remember, a lot of these leaders... On the eve of world war one actually got their job because they were literally born into it okay that there's a what you might want to call basically a lottery oh okay you're the ruler oh great are you competent no not really but you're still the ruler and that's something okay so these rulers weren't necessarily Anywhere close to up on the latest, I guess you'd say, technology or science or any of that. So a lot of them really did think that British people were a different race from, you know, even Scandinavian people, which today we know that Scandinavian people and British people are, I mean, a lot of British people are actually genetically Scandinavian, right? So okay, so what am I trying to say? That this man who said that the British youth was good—it was good for the British youth to go to war because it was good for the British race—he might have really thought that the British were actually a separate race of people, and that would ca- that would change during World War One or because of the Spanish flu because the Spanish flu because of industrialization could go from you know person to person a lot faster than say the Russian flu which was a generation earlier now let's get back to Gabriela Principe in all the histories of Gabriela Principe who shot Franz Ferdinand which caused World War One, and all of the histories about Gabriela Principe you're either going to see him referred to as a terrorist or a hero, depending on which side of the war he comes from. Now, am I here to say that one or the other of those things are true? No. I'm here to say that it doesn't matter. I'm here to say that all he really did, if he did anything at all, was not only did he kick off World War One, but... The other thing he did was that he essentially set the stage for this killer of people, this Spanish flu, to kind of circulate around the globe much, much faster than it would have done otherwise. And that's very, very important to talk about in relation to Gabriela Princey. Because at the end of the day, I'm going to tell you this story of the Serbian, I guess, independence movement and the black hand and the conspiracy that Gavriela Princip and others in the black hand, and it might have all gone all the way up to elements within the Serbian government to actually kill the friends the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Now, why did they do that? They did that because he was a moderate. That's right. Franz Ferdinand was a moderate. He was willing to work with the Slavs in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. He was willing to allow the Slavs to have a certain degree of, basically, independence. Now, if you want to be independent, if you want to be independent as a country, somebody who's a moderate, who wants you to be somewhat independent, but still in your own country, is basically anathema to you. You don't want this person at all. You don't want to be anywhere near this person. You either want what you want, or you want the worst possible scenario so that the average person in your country, the person who isn't a revolutionary, The person who just wants their life to work will just go through their lives and they'll just be like, oh, this is miserable. We have to get rid of this guy. Okay? So, in a sense, in a sense, that's exactly, precisely why they needed Franz Ferdinand to die. Now, Franz Ferdinand was he was kind of he wasn't king he was in line to be king his father was elderly it was a powder keg i hope what i've told you in the last two episodes of this thing about serbia is that serbia was a powder keg it was very fluid you know it was a con it was quicksand essentially And his father said, Oh, I don't want to go to Serbia. And so Franz Ferdinand thought, Well, I'll go. Because he thought you had to project royal power. Now, that's kind of like today. I don't know. The the closest analogy I can come up with right now is, think about um, Jack Kennedy. For those of you who might remember Jack Kennedy, Jack Kennedy went to Dallas to heal political fences with the governor of Texas, okay? And that's something you do if you're a a stable enough country, is that you you go and you want to heal your political fences with that, with those people. Well, I mean, okay. So, obviously, he misread the room, so to say, right? Obviously... Uh, Archduke Franz Ferdinand greatly mistook his popularity as popularity that filtered down to the people or filtered down to all of the people. There was certainly a cohort of, you know, we're very tempted to call them terrorists today, but there was a cohort of, of people, even within the Serbian government, who simply did not want this man around simply because they wanted to be independent and they were willing to kill him now who killed Franz Ferdinand that's how did this get rolling how did this was it just Gabriela Principe we know it wasn't just Gabriela Principe and we know we absolutely know that it was organized we're not really sure how though because so many of the people simply refused to to be named or they obfuscated the truth. Or some people, you know, their their confession was tortured out of them and we all know, or some of us should know, that torture is an unreliable way to get information out of it. Princi was basically right out of central casting for terrorists. He was not really of urban stock. He was from like so many other people, as I've said earlier. He was a peasant. He was of peasant stock. He wasn't interested in girls, although he was, as they say, heterosexual in nature. That's an interesting quote from back then. Anyway, so the main thing was that he studied what were these tracks on Serbian independence, which had been floating around in in scholarly uh, circles and also in student circles for years at this point. Remember, this was an obsession of Serbian academics was to kind of create this nation-state out of almost, well, not nothing, but, you know, a very confusing mess anyway. Anyway, so Gabriela Princi, the serious person um essentially was singular in his thoughts about an independent serbia to the point where he literally put down a lot of the the bad things in his life to the fact that he was under austro-hungarian rule remember to the serbians you know to the serbians of, of that day multiculturalism was basically a watchword for degradation I mean in America we're, we're sometimes Actually a lot of times We're very much a multicultural society But in Europe at that time And especially in Eastern Europe They certainly were not a Anything like a multicultural society Anyway So You know He's basically radicalizing himself in Belgrade at the time. The Serbian independence movement was adjacent to other, I guess you'd say, uh, movements at the time, which were seen as sort of, you know, rabble rousers, I guess is one word for it. But basically, you know, they weren't kind of the, I guess my grandpa used to say, the go along to get along kind of folks. You know, they... So if you were into the Serbian independence movement hardcore even though the government was into the Serbian movement um, to some extent as well you weren't you were marked out as not average. Well the socialist movement was the the movement de jour that everybody everybody who's everybody been everybody is the um, the powers that be in Europe so the socialist movements across Europe were the movements that the powers that be, knew to watch out for. Because that's what they were afraid of. Because, I, I guess, because, you know, they, they were attacking their money and their fortune. And I guess the powers that be, really, to them it all comes down to money. But the point is, is that one of the reasons they didn't quite understand or grasp the, I guess, the ferocity of the Serbian independence movement was because it wasn't a socialist movement. Now why wasn't a, why wasn't it a socialist movement? It wasn't a socialist movement because socialism at least at that time was a movement that did not respect boundaries and the Serbian independence movement sought directly to create boundaries. So a lot of these people started in the socialist movement, because that was like the radical movement du jour, I guess you'd say. But they didn't end up there. They actually went further to the right, and a lot of them sort of, I guess, splintered off of these movements, these socialist movements that were, you know, already a fixture in the capital uh, with the young, disaffected crowd. Um... And you know there was a there was a network of older men that was waiting to I guess groom uh, groom would be a word um, you know these people that would you know I guess do assassinations. One of those assassinations was the planned assassination of Franz Ferdinand. Now great care was taken by the Serbian powers that be, both within the Black Hand and within the government of Serbia, to make sure that distance was maintained between this assassination attempt and, you know, the older people. But it was definitely planned by older people. It's interesting to note that this planning was so well carried out, like the distancing of the planning, that is, and the planning, was so well carried out that it actually took decades for, like, scholars to, to uncover that actually, you know, Gabriella Principe did not go off half-cocked. This was actually a, a carefully orchestrated plan. Now, the, the orders were carried by word of mouth, there was great care. Kel- I mean, there was great care to isolate the cell, um, that Gabriela Princip was operating in from any other cell, and from also from the, the powers that be in the Black Hand, as well as the Serbian government. The net result of this is that today, historians really don't know how far up this went. On May 27th, a party of four people was provided weapons and bombs, and they entered into Belgrade. Now, they were very careful to not mix and mingle or to be very quiet around the Austrian authorities but they were very indiscreet around their fellow Serbs and this might have to do with the fact that I guess you know they lived in a bubble so they kinda thought that Serbs all Serbs thought the same as they did anyway the sad truth of the matter is that after the aftermath I guess of The assassination of Franz Ferdinand was that several families, several Serbian families that were illiterate and basically apolitical, so just normal people, were brought up on charges of treason just for associating with with this crowd. And this is how ruthless, I mean understandably I suppose, this is how ruthless the Austro-Hungarian Empire was towards this. On June 28th, Franz Ferdinand and his wife, Sophie, arrived by train in Sarajevo. When you look at the photographs of them, it really hits home how recent this war was. You honestly could look at them and see, I guess, relatives or friends. Of course, being an American, you know, people, well, Americans are essentially mutts. We, we look like everybody. We, we look like Eastern Europeans mixed with Norwegians, mixed with uh, Indians, because we are. But it really does strike me how, I guess, for lack of a better word, modern they look. And that's something that's interesting to me as a theme is that these people look modern but yet their thinking wasn't modern at all. So it's like the software didn't quite catch up to the hardware, if you will. But anyway, so on June the 28th, 1914, the lovely couple entered Sarajevo, and it was by all accounts a beautiful day. As early as May, if possibly not earlier, There had been seven terrorists that had been gathered into two cells, which had made their trip to Sarajevo for this exact moment. They were strapped with bombs no bigger than bars of soap with chemical detonators. There was a surplus of weapons on them. Each one of them had at least one revolver. Now, here's something very interesting. Interrogators alluded to the fact that there were people that were engaged in this conspiracy who for some reason didn't make it to the road that day. So, you know, somewhere out there, there are people that are descendants of people who were involved in planning to kill this person who for some reason decided not to on that given day. Interestingly, uh, the security was a little lax. It was so lax that it was noted by contemporaries. The Archduke and his wife were in an open car along a crowded and entirely predictable route. The troops who usually lined the curbs on such occasions were were not there, so that the motorcade passed virtually unprotected in front of these dense crowds. This was very unusual and was not protocol at all. Again, here we see the the hand of the local Sarajevo government um, mixing with the black hand. So, you know, the, the couple were strikingly unconcerned about their own safety. Franz Ferdinand had spent the last three days with his wife in a little resort town. So it's like, you know, that they weren't even... It's entirely possible that this man, Franz Ferdinand... Had little to no understanding as to what, you know, what the people might have actually thought of him, which is kind of, well, it's remarkable as an American who's used to living in a in a constitutional republic with media, etc. But, you know, maybe not. Maybe that's not remarkable, you know. Interestingly, and some of you might not know this, Franz Ferdinand actually was shot on the second assassination attempt. The first one failed, and actually the Archduke attempted to render aid to some of the victims who had been, you know, struck by the first attempt, which took the form of hand grenades. Now, the cohort of terrorists that had done this had swallowed poison because they had failed but the poison was of a low grade and they were later rounded up and captured by the police and they were some of the first interrogations about the event the second attempt was where gabriello princip struck they were speeding away from the the first assassination attempt where the archduke was rendering aid and they had basically convinced him to get back in the car because you know The people that he was traveling with were much more concerned about his safety than he was. Anywho, so they got in the car and they were going to the safety zone, which was the city hall. Now, the plan was to continue on with the day. In other words, the official day, which would have taken place entirely at the city hall. That, again, is also bizarre. But anyway, so they got in the car and they were speeding but they went the wrong way. Now here's what's interesting, I think. Now this is something I didn't really realize until today, which is, that remember how I say the Black Hand had infiltrated the, the local Sarajevo government and even some of the Serbian government? Well, so here's the deal. The driver, who was Serbian, was going the wrong way towards the city hall. And when he was told he was going the wrong way, he backed up. And that's when Princip struck the Archduke in the, basically the neck. The same bullet hit Sophie in her stomach. And the two of them were bleeding. Actually, Sophie was initially wounded to a greater degree. But in reality, they were both dying. And, you know, Ferdinand was... Apparently said, you know, stay alive for the children and he basically faded out As he kept mumbling about the children now What's interesting in retrospect? Historians look at this man and they see a man Who wasn't very popular with the heads of Europe and they they think of it as strange that? You would have elected to go to war when a very unpopular non-leader of a country was, you know, dying because he was almost universally unliked by all of the elites across Europe, you know, for various reasons. One of the reasons, ironically, was the, I guess, the notion that the Serbians needed to have, I guess, you know, some degree of autonomy within the, um the Ottoman, I mean the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But, you know, I don't actually buy that because you can actually see like a progress line that leads almost directly from the Archduke's death to the start of World War One, And actually there's a whole lot of study that has been done over the years of how complicated these treaties were and how they were overlapping and they were designed to overlap and honestly you could do an entire series of podcasts just on the treaties alone which would be fascinating Mm -hmm. for some of you i'm i'm sure but anywho this is what led to world war one and what's interesting is it led directly to it. There, there wasn't really a, um, you know, a great big warm up. So it was almost like it was just any sort of excuse at all to go to war. Would d- would do for these people. Now, what's fascinating is when we refer to the Spanish flu. Is it's almost impossible today to separate Spanish flu deaths from World War One deaths. It's not entirely impossible, but there's quite a few people that, you know, were sick, but were somewhat able to fight. And we're going to see that later. Okay, now I'm going to do some housekeeping. Um, I have a website, which is thehistoryvoyager.com. On this website is basically some YouTube videos related to my YouTube channel, which is searchable at the history Voyager. but again, you can get to the videos through the um, through the website. Now one of the things I do with my YouTube channel is I'm trying to raise awareness about the coronavirus. I promise you it's it's um, I wasn't as aware of the coronavirus as, I am today and it's largely because of the research for this podcast I really think the coronavirus is you know to use the analogy with the Spanish flu the Spanish flu was killing people in 1915 okay so we are in 1915 with the coronavirus if we don't get some kind of a hold on to it so I use my YouTube videos to raise awareness Uh, About the coronavirus. And I also. um, You know. I want to talk about. Other things in the news. With those YouTube videos. But again that's it. Thehistoryvoyager.com You can also listen to my podcast. And a lot of you are. Directly through your browser. At that website. Which is thehistoryvoyager.com I'm currently on um, Spotify, as well as Podbean, and Stitcher is. I'm I'm listed with Stitcher, but I am not quite searchable with them. I don't really understand what's going on there. But I have another, um, I have another pod podcast engine, and that is Podhound. Now Podhound is new, but it's upcoming. Um, I'm also on Twitter. At, at Ben's Charlie. That's at Ben's Charlie. Um, and I go by my name on Twitter, which is Ben Ketchings. Again, thank you very much for listening to History Voyager. There are a million podcasts. Thank you for listening to mine. Have a nice day. Bye-bye.